I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. At the end of ten days, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was better or fatter. No one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they were stationed in the king's court, and every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed such dreams that his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. The king announced, This is a public decree. If you do not tell me both the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you do tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Daniel asked Arioch, the royal official, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. So Daniel went in and requested that the king give him time, and he would tell the king the interpretation. After hearing the interpretation, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, worshipped Daniel, and commanded that grain and incense be offered to him. The king said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
over the affairs of the province of Babylon. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. So we are uh, in week two. If you um, were not with us last week, we kind of gave an intro to the series and to Daniel. Why, why are we studying Daniel? Um, what is this about? And, uh, and so go listen to the podcast. If you are not subscribed to our podcast, you can find it um, by just researching the Kingstown Communion in any podcast app you have. Anyone at all, download it to your phone, anyone, and you, sh you should be able to find us and you can listen next um, to the first weeks and stay up with us if you're gonna be gone one week this summer, um, stay connected. Um, and so I told you last week, um, I told you last week that uh, today was going to be, I was gonna give you the historical context and we're gonna have some maps. Who likes history? Oh good, who, yeah, ish, some of you are like, oh please don't bore me, please don't bore me. Um, so I'm going to ho hope, I'm gonna ask, those of you who did like this or uh, um, afterwards, if I did bore you, and you have to be honest, okay? You have to be honest. Um, so all of this story, all of the story of Daniel is taking place in the early 500s BC, or BCE, depending on when you went through school. Um, and so just as a reminder, everything that is BC counts down versus up. So it's not year one, year two, year three. Instead, it's year three, year two, year one. Just a reminder, because that will help you understand the years. Um, and so in the mid-600s, around 650 to 640, there is this great shakeup of powers in the Middle East. And so also, maybe I should frame this this way at first. Um, we're talking about a historical portion of the Bible. So while some parts of the Bible we may be able to take as metaphorical, allegorical, um, maybe we actually have history says this king existed, this happened. So if I, just for those of you who are trying to figure out where we are and how you are to listen, listen as this, this is a real historical event, okay? So around um, year 650, there's this big shakeup of powers in the Middle East, and this is about 100 years before Daniel um, before the context of Daniel we're in now. Up until that point, there is an empire called the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire basically dominated everything in that region. They amassed this great amount of territory. They're not functionally strong, as what you will later see and what we know as the Roman Empire when Jesus is born. They're not that kind of strong. Um, the Roman Empire was known for occupying forces and were able to just keep um, what they called the Pax Romana, keeping everybody squashed and under their control at all times. That's not the Assyrian Empire. Assyrian Empire was able to dominate the Middle East by Incurring allegiance from other places and people, and it was kind of collaborative, and they would send an army in if things seemed like they might get a, a little out of control, but they, did, they weren't the empire known for doing that as much. And this way of ruling, it's collaborative, nice, but it is much harder to rule this way. And so as we get lower and lower into the 600s, the Assyrian Empire, begins to fracture and completely fall apart. Countries at the edge of the empire begin doing their own thing. They're revolting, they're claiming some independence for themselves. And so here's a map of the Assyrian Empire. I'm gonna move over here just for the sake of being able to show you this. Here's a map of the Assyrian Empire. 
Over here you have, you might see it in here, you have the Tigris and Euphrates, which we call the Fertile Crescent, um, those, those rivers there. Um, and then here at the bottom is Egypt, over in the left, so the left bottom um, side you have, have Egypt. Now you would think that if the Assyrians wanted to come over and take Egypt, to dominate Egypt, that they would just go straight line down the bottom of the page, that's the most direct route. But what is at the bottom of the page? You see that big word that says D? It's a desert, so they, they could, but this would be incredibly problematic, um, and everybody would die, and so they don't. Um, so if you wanted to fight a battle with another major force at this time, you actually got to go up and over and come down through Turkey and come through what is known today as Israel. Israel is in this region right here. You might see some names you, un you recognize. Jerusalem, Damascus, um, Palestine, right there. Uh, those of you who know anything about um, modern day uh, uh, conflict in that region um, will know that that is modern day Israel and Palestine is right there. Um, we're not going to talk too much about that conflict today. So if you want to fight a battle, you've got to go up and over and down through Israel. At this point in time, it was called the, the tribe of Judah. It was called the nation of Judah, where God's people resided, which means that any time there was a new military power that sprung up in the Middle East, in order for that power to get to and to take over the resources of Egypt, they had to come right through the promised land. And so what we see at the end of the Assyrian Empire is that Egypt and Judah had really started to flex their own muscles and want to be their own independent states at this time, and they're bucking against the Assyrian Empire. And while that is all happening, the Assyrian Empire is frantically trying to keep their pieces together, but they're too collaborative and they're not as dominating, and so they can't keep it together. While all that's happening, this new king, unsuspected, this new king, comes into power in an area called Babylon. And this king's name is Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone say Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. And now say Nebi. Nebi. That's what I'm going to call him. So Nebi takes his, this town called Babylon and builds an army and builds what we start to know as this Neo-Babylonian Empire. We're transitioning from the Assyrian to the Babylonian Empire. And this budding Babylonian Empire begins um, to march, to take over this entire area. Um, and so keep this map in mind, and now look at the Babylonian map. So we flip to the Babylonian map. The first thing you're going to notice is not much changed. This is how this worked at this point in time. They, you just keep taking over the same land that other people had. Um, it's the same land. It's just called different things now, different borders now. Um, it's in this time that of the Babylonian conquest that the Assyrian Empire can't seem to maintain control um, anymore and the Pharaoh of Egypt and the King of Israel are distracted and doing their own things and having their own fights and weakening each other and becoming super distracted by each other and it's right at this time that Nebi, King Nebi, comes in completely undetected, takes over all of it and requires that everyone in the empire begin to bow down and to worship him as the embodiment and the incarnation of their Babylonian gods. This is how it works. If your country is invaded by another country, it just means that your God is weaker than our God, 
and, uh, and so now you have to worship our gods. That's just how it worked when you conquered an area. And so at first, for a while, the people of Judah were about, were, were okay. They lived in peace. They were under Babylonian rule. They did this for a little while. They, you know, their king of Judah sent some gifts and some, some servants up to Babylon to say, you know, we're keeping the peace with you. But eventually, and this is what Israel was known to do, eventually they get too big for their britches, and they start flexing their muscles again, and they start getting restless. And finally, the Babylonian Empire, which was different from the Assyrian Empire, Nebi, has to squash the revolts. And he comes into Jerusalem, which you see right where I pointed before, Jerusalem, you see Jericho next to it. He comes into Jerusalem, and um, he besieged the capital city of Judah twice. And the second time, he wipes out the entire town, tore down the temple, captured all the people, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people he took back to live in Babylon. And so in the book of Lamentations, it actually recounts this um, in these words. Every worst woe befell the city, which drank the cup of God's fury to the dregs. It's, amazing. it's like an amazing line. It's so poetic. It's so Game of Thrones, right? Like, <laughs> every worst woe befell the city, which drank the cup of God's fury to the dregs. That was in 589 BC. And it says that no one remained in the land at this point, after, after they, they destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, took thousands of people with them back to Babylon. No one re remained in the land except the poorest people, and they were left with absolutely nothing. And they took all the middle and higher class people, people of skill, and of wealth and of wisdom, and they led them back as enslaved in Babylon. They led them into exile. So that's where we are. That's my short history lesson of how you get to the beginning of Daniel. That's where we are. This exile is one of the key moments in the biblical narrative, and we, do, we never talk about it. Um, we could probably turn back on the lights. Uh, this exile is one of the key pieces of this biblical narrative, and we rarely talk about it. We love to talk about Abraham and Moses. We like to throw in some Noah in there. We get to king. We love to go from like, um, oh, they had no king to, oh, yay, David's now their king, and we love King David. And then there's some kings after that, and then we love the prophets. We love to read them as they're telling Israel how horrible you are and how you need to repent and turn back to God, but we rarely ever talk about this key piece of Israel's history called exile. This is a key moment in Israelite history. A lot of things begin to coalesce for God's people in this moment. It is a shaping and a forming. It's the most formative part of their identity and their understanding of who they are and who the Jewish people think they are today, believe themselves to be today, is most informed by exile. And while it's, it's Daniel's particular account of exile that we'll be reading throughout the summer, um, this is just one of many. There are, the second half of the Old Testament is just filled with accounts of, of exile. It is in exile that Israel begins longing. Exile is the thing we experience together every year in a particular season. I would love to know if y'all know what season that is. 
No, in the Christian, in the Christian church, we experience um, exile together. Our music turns into a minor key, and we experience exile together in... Nope. <laughs> nice. Advent. Isn't that interesting, y'all? Isn't that interesting? So it's exile that Israel begins longing for a rescuer to rescue them from all this stuff, longing for a restorer, longing for a savior, longing for a messiah, sounds very Jewish, a king who will finally come and save them from their enslavement and their destruction and rebuild this nation when they tore apart Jerusalem. This is why we have the season of Advent. When we think Advent, we think Christmas. That's what we normally do. We think God finally coming in Jesus. Advent should not feel like Christmas. It should feel like exile. That's what it should feel like. We try to create that here. Sometimes we're, you know, then we bring in Santa Claus and then, you know, that, that, that wrecks it. But um, <laughs> because it's on the heels and it's in the waste of exile, 500 years after Nebi besieges Jerusalem and takes thousands of people back with him to Babylon, Jesus is born. And we believe that that is our rescuer, our restorer, our Messiah, our Savior. That's, that's how we interpret Advent. And we're longing with all of the Jews throughout time to be, to be restored. And so today, that's, all my, that's my beginning section, I know, but I needed to tell you it. Today we launch into, this, into a summer with Daniel's story of this. Daniel's incredibly important piece of this exile puzzle. And the story of Daniel begins with one of those crucial decision points. King Nebi, after conquering and destroying Jerusalem and taking all of these people back, King Nebi has captured thousands upon thousands of people, and a crucial question now lies before him. What is he going to do with all of these thousands upon thousands of people? What is he going to do when he brings them back to Babylon? Not to oversimplify, but I think he has two options here. Option number one, he can subjugate them. He can subjugate these people, turn them into slaves. To do that, he would have, he'd be able to build lots of things. He'd have a full workforce in Babylon now for him. Um, but he'd also have a group of people who would deeply resent him. And remember, he, he's taken all of these skilled, most educated people from Israel to turn these people into slaves would be creating resentment amidst a group of people who are going to constantly be trying to find a way to get back home and to rebel and to uprise. Or, or Nebi, instead of making these people slaves, he could teach them to be good Babylonians. What if we could enculturate these people over time, people who are the best and the brightest of Israel, so that one, once really good and obedient Babylonians, they can help us rebuild our culture and our society. They can help us become successful. What if we could assimilate and convince these people not to resent us, but rather to actually be in favor of us? That this was what they wanted all along, really. And this is what King Nebi decides to do. He, he says, let us teach them the language of the Chaldeans. Let's teach them our stories. 
show them our ways until one day they get to a point where they don't know the difference between their stories and our stories, our ways and their ways and their gods and our gods. And Daniel and his three friends become the subject of indoctrination, this brainwashing at the heart of King Nebi's plan. And what we see in Daniel over and over and over again is Daniel's awareness, his um, wokeness, and wise rebellion of this. Every time he could fall deeper and deeper into this indoctrination, he wakes up to what this is really about, what's really at the heart of this. And he's wise about the way he rebels. Instead of bowing down to the ways of the king, Daniel, Daniel remains faithful to the ways of God. And so on the spot in Daniel 1 and 2, we see a variety of things. We see they're taken from their land. They're forced to take on a new culture. He says, teach them our ways. They're forced to take on a new language. Let's teach them Aramaic. They're forced to take on new names. You heard them rename these guys at one point. And then, the, then a significant part of it was they're forced to take on new eating customs. They have to eat the meat that is sacrificed to other gods, and this is completely out of the realm of possibility for someone who submits to the Torah. And this renaming thing, this renaming thing is what I think is, is so crucial. It's so interesting. Names carry in them this deep identity, this deep sense of belonging and this sense of purpose. So like my name is Michelle Lee Matthews. And so each one of those carries a particular significance to it. Michelle, because my parents, you know, were growing up in the 60s and they loved the Beatles, which tells you um, that my dad, was, even though he was stationed all the way in Japan, apparently the Beatles were pervasive enough to get there. Like when this 19, 1965 song came out, he knew he wanted to name his daughter after this song, even though he's somewhere in Japan. Um, that's, there's significance in that name. Lee, L-E-I-G-H, because my dad's middle name is Lee, L-E-E. And the feminine version of that is L-E-I-G-H, and that's how I got named Lee. It was, it was this little ode <laughs> to my dad after my mom spent her entire pregnancy calling me Little Walt, and then I came out a girl. <laughs> and then Matthews, Chris's family name that I took when I got married, the, the name Chris's grandmother took when she moved to America, especially, specifically Ohio, from, um, from Belgium as a war bride in the 1940s. I mean, names have deep significance. If you start inspecting them, they tell you something about your identity and who you are. Names matter and they, they carry this weight. And my name says that I'm a part of a particular tribe of people, that I've been formed. My life has come together because of this tribe of people. My name tells something about my identity and the world calls me a lot of things. The world's gonna throw a whole lot of other names at me throughout my time on this earth. Some people have called me things that I will not repeat, but I know I am Michelle Lee Matthews. I can remember my name. I can remember who gave me that name. At the end of the day, I don't just belong to a tribe, but I find my identity in the people who gave me that name. And when others try to name me, force names upon me, and identities that are not my own, when others try to question my identity, I can remember who gave me my name. 
and what that means to me. In the Bible particularly, we see this all over the place. Over and over and over again, God gives people new names. Not just to name their identity and belonging, but to name their particular purpose throughout time. And here in Daniel, all of this is going on in, in chapter 1 and chapter 2. All of this is going on. We have Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, Azariah from the tribe of Judah. They had their belonging, had their identity in those names, and new names are given. Belteshazzar, which is way cooler than Daniel. Two Zs in a name always means it's cooler. Um, Daniel's new name, Belteshazzar, is after the god of Baal now. Daniel now has been given a name that means worshiper of Baal, this pantheon of Babylonian gods. Shadrach and Meshach, you'll notice that their names sort of rhyme and sound similar, and that's how you remember them better than the others. That's because Hananiah and Mishael are both renamed Shadrach, meaning under the command of Aku, another Babylonian god. Meshach, meaning the one who is like Aku, another Babylonian god. Azariah becomes Abednego. Nebu is the god of wisdom. Both Nebuchadnezzar, the king Nebi, and Abednego are both odes to that same god, the god of wisdom in Babylonian culture. And all of them are given names that say, you no longer worship the god of Judah. Let me tell you who you are now. Let me tell you who your identity is now, where you'll find your identity. And so you've got these guys in exile, and they are given this new culture they have to assimilate into, a new language to speak, new names to answer, new food to eat from the master's table that is not in keeping with the Torah. And the question arises, how are they going to respond to this? What will they do? What will Daniel do? And it says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. Sometimes it's important to note what's missing, not just what's said. It does not say anything about rebelling against learning this new language. It does not say anything about rebelling against responding to these new names. The food thing is the thing Daniel chooses. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. I think Daniel's response here is a strikingly internal response. Here he is, literally force-fed another culture, brainwashed, and he's woke enough to realize what's happening. And instead of saying, forget the king, this is outrageous, all of you are horrible people, I refuse, we're going to revolt and escape instead of making this huge thing of it. And he could have done all of that, and rightfully so. Instead, though, the first thing Daniel did was make this really internally motivated resolve within himself to resist becoming someone that he was not. He asked the question, we asked the question last week, um, when is it that we, we know we should say something, when we should stand up for ourselves and for, for someone else or for something we believe in and when, we, when do we know when it's time to speak out and when it's not time to speak out? And I don't know about you, but every single day I am brought face to face with so many things and systems and people that I want to speak out against 
and I want to condemn. So many things, there's a list of them. I feel like someone is trying to force feed me a culture that is not my own. And all of these things are really public. All of them. All of them are somebody else doing something that's not right. All of them are someone, some system, some law, some platform that is outside of me that I can point to and say, there, that's the problem. But that's not where Daniel starts. Daniel starts not by pointing out what everyone else is doing wrong and speaking out about the list of things he could be rightfully outraged about. Instead, Daniel responds by choosing to live a life that is shaped and formed differently than the Babylonians are trying to shape and form him. A life that, that solidifies who he is and not who they are telling him to become. It begins, in a sense, first in this internal resistance. This internal resistance is where Daniel begins. It's almost as if he has to do the work of remembering his name, remembering where he comes from, who he is. I will not let them make me someone I'm not. And what's striking about this decision to me is the way in which the, this kind of wisdom is constantly found, not just in the Old Testament, but throughout all of the New Testament. Paul, writing from his own exile in the letter to the Philippians, puts it this way, so many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a savior, a Lord Jesus Christ, to come and transform us. Therefore, stand firm in the Lord in this way. What Paul, what Paul is saying here in a theological sense is we're not from around here. We're not from around here. We're not a part of this kingdom. We're not living in a land that is controlled by this king. Uh, we're living in a land that's controlled by this particular king, but we're not a part of this kingdom in this particular sense. He's talking about the Roman Empire. Paul says we're, we're living in our own sense every day in a sense of exile. We're living in a world that is not set up to imitate the way of Jesus, expecting it constantly to imitate the way of Jesus. Somehow we still condemn it, like it's supposed to imitate the way of Jesus. But we're living in a world not set up to do that. Our culture is not set up to help us do that for ourselves. Our culture is not set up to help us imitate this inclusive God. So of course we're going to see exclusion over and over and over again. Our world is not set up for, for peace to blossom in the midst of division. So of course we're going to have parties that just can never see eye to eye on anything. Our culture is not set up for hope to conquer despair. Our culture is not set up to side on the side of the poor, or the oppressed, or the vulnerable, or the meek, or the lonely. It's funny that we expect it to do so still. This is not the way of this kingdom. This is the way of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so we have to conceive of ourselves as citizens of another kingdom, so we can do this internal work in our mind of standing firm. This is not just Dan Daniel's choice in Babylon. 
It is the reminder for us all in the midst of the corners and the culture we find ourselves in, in the midst of DC Metro America, in the midst of divisive political agendas, while the poor get poorer and the rich get richer, while rights and ways we thought were secure are taken away, this is Daniel's choice and it's our choice that wherever we find ourselves that we recognize that we are not from around here. We know our heritage. We know our lineage, we know our neighborhood and our address. We have those. We can pick it, we can pick out where we live on a map, but ultimately we belong to this different kingdom. We serve a different king. And it's so difficult within this place where we, we don't belong for us to fall victim to those things that wage war against our souls, as Paul called it. Before we stand up for ourselves, before we stand up for others, before we stand up for something we believe in, before we know what it is that God would call us to stand up for, I think we first have to do that hard internal work of carving out those spaces in our lives where we've been feasting from the king's table. We have been eating the royal rations. We have been privileged enough to eat those and still pointing the fingers at all those who also eat from the table. And you know what I've noticed over time? I've noticed that I, I trust God, I love God, but I can honestly tell you that sometimes I kind of like my new names. I like my new names better than maybe my old ones. I like, I like when I'm known for having a nice house. I like whatever that name is for that. I like being thought of as successful, successful Michelle. I like that. I like that name too. Most of my life I feel really afraid that I'm going to, to not live up to the potential that others have for me. And so I like those new names. I like the names others give me. I like the names I want others to give me. And so I think I live in constant fear that I'm going to let other people down and, and when done well, when I am successful, when I can really feast on the king's rations, and it tastes good. It tastes good to be sitting at the king's table. There are some places in me that I need to carve out. There are some names in, that I like that I've got to get rid of. And it occurs to me that throughout all time, um, Jesus was really good at this, really good at this. We constantly put labels on Jesus. People were trying to put labels on him, put names on him. Jesus wasn't assimilated into our culture. Jesus was incarnated into our culture. He wasn't dragged down. He wasn't, he wasn't the king we wanted him to be. He wasn't the, 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 warrior, the warrior king on the horse. But in order to do the work of redemption of which he, he had taken on himself, he had to remember over and over and over again his core identity and who he was. Every time in the Gospels when someone tries to give Jesus a new name, the best, the brightest, the warrior king, the new emperor, the new king, Jesus says, get behind me. Over and over again, I know who I am. I know who I am. And he goes to that place of prayer, the place of prayer we're going to go to today. And he says over and over again, how does he start his prayer? Jesus starts his prayer with our Father, remembering how he got his name, remembering who his daddy is, remembering who his father is, where he came from. Oh, I came from the Father. 
And because of that, I know I can say, get behind me. Will you pray with me? God, as we enter into this story of Daniel, there's just so much to cover in the first week, God, to, to, to understand where these people are and why Daniel is, is here and what, what the decisions he's making. And, and so we ask that you would help our minds open to, to receive it and to chew on it. And it is a different kind of, of study. Um, it's a different kind of, of depth. Of, of digging into the Bible, and I, we ask that you would open our minds to be receptive to that as people who truly want to learn from you, learn your way, learn your wisdom. God, we, like Daniel, can so easily um, be renamed. We can uh, allow the world to rename us we can get really satisfied and quite um, honored and um, by all the, all the names that people place on us and also those names we, we, we also reject. But God, in this first step today, we ask that you would move in our hearts to teach us the wisdom that is that internal quiet, that internal resistance, where the very first step in every decision that we make is, is saying, God, I resist someone making me who I am not. I resist falling into a culture or a kingdom or its expectations of me when I am a part of your kingdom. I resist this notion that everyone around me and the world around me is bound by this particular standard when that is your standard. We know the world will not look like you because you are not of the world. And so we look toward you. We calm our hearts, we calm our outrage, we center ourselves and we become people of wisdom. And we enter into that prayer that you taught us to pray, where we remember who, whose we are, your children. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. I will try to follow.